I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we explore one of the most fascinating Supreme Court cases of this term, Lee versus Tam. In 2006, Simon Tam formed a rock band he called The Slants in order to bring attention to discrimination against Asian Americans. But in 2011, when he applied for a trademark, a word name or symbol used to identify a good and indicated source, he was denied. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office said the band name violates the Lanham Act, which bars the government from approving trademarks that contain, quote, matters which may disparage persons living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols, or bring them into contempt or disrepute. Is this law a violation of the free speech clause of the First Amendment? Joining me to discuss the issue and the best arguments on all sides of this case are America's leading experts in constitutional law and intellectual property. Deborah Gerhardt is Associate Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law. She teaches copyright and trademark law, and she is the Constitution Center's trademark and copyright guru. And she is here to join us as a neutral explainer to help us understand where this case fits in context. Ilya Shapiro, our returning champion, is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He is also a member of the Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, and he has filed his third annual funny brief in the Lee and Tam case, which I strongly urge our listeners to find online. And Rebecca Tushnet is professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center, the soon-to-be inaugural Frank Stanton professor of First Amendment law at the Harvard Law School, and one of America's leading experts on the First Amendment and copyright law. Rebecca, congratulations on your superb new appointment, and welcome, Rebecca, Ilya, and Deborah. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be back. Thank you. Great. Deborah, let's jump right in. Um, what is trademark law, and how is the Lee and Tam case uh, important in fitting into the context of trademark law? Trademarks are the symbols that businesses use to present themselves to the world. So, for example, the word Nike, that apple with the piece bitten out of it that we see on so many laptops, those are the types of symbols that are protected by trademark law. Trademark law is... Really, really an interesting area of law because we have state law and we have federal law that both govern this area. And the really cool thing about trademark law is that you can get rights in these business symbols just by using them. So at base, trademark rights just come from your use by your business in commerce. So I start selling computers with apples on them, I will have rights in the geographic area that I am working in. But if I, want, if I know that I want my business to go national and really have a big national presence, I can apply to the United States Patent and Trademark Office to get a federal registration. And there are a lot of advantages to registration, but one of the big ones is that from the day I file that application, I will have a presumption of national rights if I get my registration. So it's a great thing to get a registration for entrepreneurs that really want to have uh, national businesses. So when you go to the United States Patent and Trademark Office and try to register a trademark, there's some rules some things that you're permitted to register and things that you may not. One of the big uh, one of the underlying ideas in trademark law is that it's supposed to really help consumers find information. So if a band registers the name The Slants, for example, and somebody else comes along and wants to register that same name later, if there's a registration on file for The Slants, the United States Patent and Trademark Office will say, no, you can't have that because if there's two rock dance bands named the slants, then there could be confusion in the marketplace. So this is uh, the co most common reason why trademark applications are denied. In this case, 
however, the slants was denied by a different provision of the Lanham Act, which says you may not have a trademark if it disparages a person or a group of people. And the question before the court is whether the United States Patent and Trademark Office can continue to deny trademarks on that basis or whether that bar violates the free expression right of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Beautifully summarized. Thank you so much. Ilya, in your funny brief, which really is funny, uh, you say that the question presented is, does the government get to decide what's a slur? And you say that the Lanham Act both uh, violates the First Amendment because disparaging epithets are protected by the First Amendment. The prohibition suppresses political speech, and it's also unconstitutionally vague. You give yourself as an example. You say, I myself am a Russian Jewish emigre who's now a dual U.S.-Canadian citizen. Can I make Borscht Belt jokes about Canuck frostbacks, even though the first time I went to shul was while clerking in Jackson, Mississippi? Uh, okay, you can run with it. Give us some excerpts uh, of your favorite uh, highlights from the brief, and why do you think that this prohibition violates the First Amendment? Well, I, I will in a moment, but the point is that uh, at base, what you have here is uh, a, a government lawyer at the Patent and Trademark Office decides when something is or isn't disparaging. It's, uh, it's vague. It's the government imposing uh, viewpoint discrimination as opposed to simply content-based decisions, like if something, uh, for example, has a geographical denomination, you can't use that improperly, or uses somebody's name um, that might get confusing in some way, or isn't, is just a generic description of the object rather than some uh, new creative descriptor. These are content-based uh, um, uh, criteria that can be neutrally applied, but what's disparaging or offensive um, that uh, obviously is subjective, and indeed, uh, sometimes something might be uh, disparaging, sometimes something might be uh, taking the name back, as uh, Simon Tam is trying to do here. Um, and he's not the first one. Um, there's a, a very interesting amicus brief uh, filed by the San Francisco Dykes on Bikes, and they talk about how finally, after many years of battle, they got their uh, uh, name registered as a trademark, but later their logo was denied because of the same words, and the PTO said that the inconsistency is perfectly fine. Or um, uh, bands in particular, there's a, there's a long tradition uh, of rock bands and, 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 uh, and rap bands uh, that uh, pick names because they are shocking or potentially offensive or disparaging uh, in the traditional way. For example, the Slits, the Queers, Queen, Pansy Division, NWA, uh, which stands for Niggas with Attitudes. Um, or other names, other, other bands that push the envelope musically and culturally, like the Sex Pistols, the Dead Kennedys, the Butthole Surfers. I've never heard of them, but interesting. Rape Man, Snatch and the Poontangs, Pussy Galore, Dying Fetus, and many, many more. And these names uh, aren't simply there for shock value. That's certainly a part of it, but they're meant to convey something about the band or about the music. As we write, uh, it should come as no surprise that the Queers are not a Lawrence Welk cover band, the Revolting Cocks are not a string quartet, Dying Fetus does not play jazz standards, and Gay Witch Abortion would never open for Paul Anka. And so similarly, the Slants uh, are, I, I don't know if you've listened to uh, their music, I actually spent an afternoon doing so the day that we filed uh, uh, the brief, uh, and uh, I kind of like it. Um, uh, they, they really um, you know, do a good job of uh, turning on its head uh, all of these uh, uh, slurs and, and, and political commentary more broadly. Uh, they're progressives of, of um, various political uh, kinds, and especially on, on the progressive uh, political uh, spectrum, you, you often see uh, trademark, whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter uh, or we've been talking about the LGBT uh, community. Um, but anyhow, uh, that's the point. It's not the government that should be making these decisions uh, if uh, so people are, are so offended by the slant name, then that'll be reflected in uh, 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 lower uh, CD uh, music sales and uh, lower attendance uh, at their concerts. Uh, it's not for the government to decide for all of us what proper uh, standards of decorum uh, might be. And again, this disparaging part of the relevant uh, Lanham Act provision is very different uh, from other uh, uh, criteria that uh, trademark uh, uh, examiners look at 
when deciding whether to register a trademark. This is purely viewpoint-based. Um, that is, you're, you're, you're against uh, some uh, disparaging some group rather than these objective criteria involving uh, geography or people's names or whether it's a, um, a generic description of an object or, or, or a new kind of mark. Thank you so much for that, Ilya. I ask you to uh, read from your brief with attention to our wonderful We the People listenership from 8 to 80, and your self-restraint was just admirable. That was superb and much appreciated. Um, Rebecca, uh, you write on SCOTUS blog, if content-based regulations must always survive strict scrutiny, most of trademark law is likely unconstitutional. And you say that the disparagement provisions of the Lanham Act are uh, not viewpoint-based, and that if we struck down content-based discrimination, then this would affect trademark law more broadly. Tell us more about both of those arguments. Uh, you know, Ilya's brief is very funny. Uh, mine is not. Uh, and <laughs> I'm sure uh, it is in its way. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's because um, I'm actually more interested in the broader principle because I don't think uh, that the disparagement bar is viewpoint based. And you'll notice that uh, uh, Ilya moves rather smoothly and persuasively between viewpoint based discrimination and content based discrimination. But um, I think it's important uh, to note that we treat viewpoint-based discrimination, even in government programs, with uh, more scrutiny, more uh, worry uh, than content-based discrimination, because it's acceptable in many government programs to focus on a particular type of content or make content-based uh, distinctions, but it's more troubling when we make viewpoint-based distinctions. So I want to ask, why uh, do we care? Why do we think that viewpoint-based distinctions are worse? And uh, it's because, I believe, that we are targeting some group, um, some position in the world that is associated with, you know, a a thing for which there can be winners and losers. Often that group is defined by characteristics other than speech. Maybe it's religion, maybe it's race, uh, but it, it, the viewpoint is often associated with that. Or maybe it's political party, right? Democrats versus Republicans. Um, so for me, that's what view, that's what distinguishes viewpoint-based discrimination from content-based discrimination. Now, framed in that way, uh, the disparagement bar is just not viewpoint-based discrimination. Uh, I can like or hate any of the groups uh, that Ilya describes if I choose a term that a substantial number of them think is disparaging to describe them, and the PTO receives sufficient evidence of that, that that's how the group perceives the term, then my registration will be refused, though of course I won't be punished in any way uh, for continuing to use it, and much as, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, these bans None of these bans have ever been punished. I believe NWA was, uh, may have been faced with an obscenity prosecution or, or two, uh, but uh, never on the basis of their name. So uh, the, for, for me, the disparagement bar is, it's like defamation. Um, you, know, you, just, uh, you can't defame anyone. Democrat or Republican, although who knows if uh, this will continue uh, under our new regime. Um, so uh, once you say that, then the question is, in what circumstances can registration take account of content-based distinctions between terms? And I think that answer has to concede a lot of latitude for the government because, uh, as Ilya correctly notes, uh, the rest of the exclusions in the Lanham Act are also content-based. Is your particular mark confusing with other marks? Is your particular mark descriptive of uh, the characteristics of the things that you want to sell. Is your particular mark deceptive when applied to the particular things you want to sell? Those all do require you to evaluate what the mark means in the context that you're using it to the people who are going to be perceiving it. So uh, in, uh, my brief suggests that we should be, uh, we should allow the government a fair amount of latitude uh, in making content-based determinations when it's deciding whether or not to give the benefit of registration. Uh, and I think that, in fact, uh, keeping disparaging terms off the register is perfectly valid thing for the government to want to do. It just doesn't want to uh, it give even the impression 
that it agrees with this, the disparagement. And it's not a matter of whether people understand what a registration means versus using a mark in commerce. It's really a question of what the government itself is prepared to endorse as a legitimate uh, use of terms to identify yourself in commerce. And I think of the case of Shelley versus Kramer, uh, which is a really interesting case in which the Supreme Court said that it would be unconstitutional to enforce private covenants requiring racial discrimination. Usually, uh, private action is completely uh, with the exception of the 13th Amendment, cannot violate the Constitution. But the Supreme Court said the court stepping in and recognizing this as a valid reason would be unconstitutional. And I think the impulse here is the same, that the government itself doesn't want to be involved with the disparagement. Um, and I think that's enough. Fascinating. Deborah, uh, you've heard the argument so far. Can you sum up, as you see it, how the issue is joined between uh, Rebecca's claim that this is not viewpoint discrimination, and if the court were to strike down this as content discrimination, much of trademark law would be called into question. Ilya disagrees. D descriptively, would, in fact, much of trademark law be called into question if the court were to rule against the slants? Well, I think it completely depends on whether you can draw a distinction between the disparagement of, uh, provisions and the other provisions that uh, also regulate the content of what the trademark is. Is there the question is is there something different about saying that you cannot have this mark because it's confusing? or because it's generic, it's a generic word, such as uh, you can't have apple if you're selling apples, right? Is there something different from those types of bars against registration and those that are, and, and those that go more to the expressive content, such as whether they disparage, whether they are scandalous? Great, thank you for that. Um, Ilya, there are some recent Supreme Court cases that are relevant here, in particular Walker versus Texas Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. That was last year, and that upheld a decision by the state of Texas not to allow an image of the Confederate flag on specialty license plates because the design might be offensive to the public. How does that apply in, 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 in this case? I'm glad you, you brought up Walker. That was the uh, second case uh, in which we filed our, our so-called funny brief, and we were on a <laughs> on the losing side of that one under kind of an odd theory that um, a license plate uh, constitutes uh, government speech. Um, now here, uh, I don't think you could say that a trademark is government speech. Uh, it's not like the government endorses both Coke and Pepsi uh, or such venerable brands as Take Your Panties Off or uh, Capitalism Sucks Donkey Balls. Um, there are a whole lot of registered trademarks, and I'm really not sure uh, the government, the, U the U.S. government, uh, 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 you know, stands behind as as representing uh, American values. To use the Walker analogy, this is more like uh, the government denying a license plate altogether for someone who's driving the General Lee, that is, that big orange car from the Dukes of Hazard that has the Confederate battle flag on top. Uh, this is not. Uh, that the, the government is speaking through a trademark. Instead, it's uh, registering um, what somebody else has, has come up with. And now that, again, that does not mean that it's somehow subsidizing, uh, providing funds for, making the trademark part of a government program. All of these sorts of claims and arguments that have been made uh, by the government here, I think, are inept. Um, uh, the, the government lawyer at the, at, the, at the patent trademark office is still going to go through the application, spend his or her resources, uh, whether they ultimately uh, 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 register or deny registration. Uh, any government funds are either de minimis or uh, part of overhead, uh, in effect. It, it's not that um, if the slants were registered, then they're, they get some sort of annual uh, uh, funding or tax break or, or, or anything like that. Uh, and so this is neither a subsidy uh, nor an endorsement. Uh, I should say here, I probably should have said that at the top, that I'm not an intellectual property uh, expert uh, like, like Rebecca. Uh, a lot of the arguments that she makes in her brief um, are, and that she's presenting now, 
uh, are joined better by the brief of other law professors led by Greg Dolan at the University of Baltimore. And your readers can go into that. It's uh, He's the one that actually came up with this uh, General Lee example about the government providing a license plate for it rather than someone wanting to design their own uh, license plate. Um, and the, the biggest point here is that um, that, that, that that brief makes, the, the Dolan and, and Law Profs brief, is that uh, not just trademark, but copyright and maybe even patent law uh, could be affected uh, if the government tries to decide that something is offensive or disparaging or uh, applying criteria that uh, aren't just kind of vague and subjective, but necessarily are applied uh, inconsistently, uh, which there, thereby chills the development of the intellectual property. For example, the PTO denied trademark registration for Have You Heard Satan is a Republican, but granted the trademark application for The Devil is a Democrat. I don't know if that was uh, because uh, of which, whichever administration was in charge of the PTO at that time. But again, that raises further uh, 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 potential issues of uh, political slanting of these subjective decisions. Or what about such marks as Yid Dish or The Guidos of Comedy? or mulata, those were all granted, in addition to Dykes with Bikes uh, that, I, that I previously said. The PTO seems conflicted on FAG. It refused registration of FAG out and FAG Forever a Genius as disparaging, but approved PHAG FAG for registration uh, and has registered FAG Dog three times and refused it twice. So I guess it's depending on what the particular lawyer has for breakfast that morning, uh, how it's gonna be applied. And again, if the rules, if the law is unclear or applied in an inconsistent manner, that defies the rule of law. That, that leads to arbitrariness, uh, and, it, and it shows how these sorts of things, far from the government being uniformly uh, uh, declining to endorse something that could be taken as uh, 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 reflecting badly on the, uh, the full faith and credit of the United States government and its laws, uh, but instead, uh, this is a, a case of simply the government administering a system of trademark registration, which it doesn't have to have, I suppose, uh, but if it's going to, um, then it should apply it uh, in a neutral manner as, uh, again, referring to the, uh, the, the Dolan Law Profs brief, uh, uh, they write, reversal of the decision below that is ruling for the government here uh, would transform the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office from an agency whose purpose is to promote the progress of science and useful arts into a panel of moral censors tasked with purging putatively offensive speech from the marketplace of ideas. Thank you for that. Uh, Rebecca, Ilya points to the possibility of arbitrary or discriminatory uh, enforcement, but give us a sense, how long has the government had this power under the Lanham Act? What are the purposes uh, which you, in your brief you say go beyond protecting consumers from deception, but also uh, relate to um, uh, pr pr protecting uh, consumers in, in, in other ways and, 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 and just talk historically about how this kind of prohibition fits into the fabric of trademark and copyright law. Uh, well, it doesn't fit into the fabric of copyright law, um, although there is historically an exclusion from copyright for obscene materials, which has become highly contested uh, over the years as the First Amendment has expanded. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Uh, some version of excluding marks that are contrary to public morality uh, is a pretty much universal feature of trademark law uh, since its inception. And people trace it back in different ways. But let's say uh, for more than a hundred years. Uh, the first uh, uh, trademark law uh, uh, um, th that was struck down uh, by the, the Supreme Court back when it didn't believe in uh, Commerce Clause powers uh, had similar exclusions. Uh, the tiny little 1909 Trademark Act uh, that covered a tiny bit of economic activity had similar exclusions. The 1947 Lanham Act uh, then gave us the word disparagement, but uh, it is a pretty universal feature of trademark laws around the world to have some sort of exclusion for marks that are contrary to public morality. And people generally thought that this was um, a way to prevent uh, false uh, associations. Uh, that's the that's the one piece of legislative history we have from the 1947 Act. Um, but actually, I wanted to say something more about inconsistency, if that's okay. Uh, so Ilya suggests that the differences in art mark outcomes could be because of political differences among examiners. Um, he doesn't know the timing of these. Uh, 
in fact, it's not political differences, uh, certainly not among administrations. It's because we're up to 500,000 applications every year. Uh, it's also because the PTO relies on outside evidence. So if somebody doesn't oppose, then um, it, then probably it's going to get through unless the dictionaries that the PTO consults say really clearly this is only ever disparaging. So, you know, the PTO has limited resources and uh, it does make inconsistent decisions. And the thing that I want to uh, focus on is this argument about inconsistency, while there are very fair points to be made, it's actually the most dangerous argument for trademark law in general. So, Every kind of trademark dispute you can imagine, you can find this same inconsistency. For example, there's a recent case uh, involving churrascos, which turns out to be the name of a particular kind of smoked meat. Um, so a entity registered churrascos for the name of its restaurant and then tried to register its logo for the name of its restaurant. And the second time the PTO said, hey, turns out that's generic for a kind of smoked meat. We didn't have that information the first time around uh, and we're not going to be bound by our mistake the first time. So it's actually, it's not political. It's not about dikes on bikes. The exact same thing happened because the evidence was different. Uh, there's a circuit split on the status of chicken of the sea. Now, if you really care about the rule of law, then it seems like we shouldn't have registration at all. Maybe we shouldn't even have infringement cases because they are certainly inconsistent in really crazy ways across the board. Now, you might decide that the government shouldn't be making those decisions. But my point and the brief uh, that uh, tried to make this point is that has real implications for the rest of the system. Now, if you are a balancer like Justice Breyer, I think you can probably get yourself out of that by saying, well, uh, we care about some things more than others, but uh, most of the doctrines that we have for dealing with First Amendment problems would lead us to treat um, you know, genericness, as with Tarasco's descriptiveness, as with Chicken of the Sea, in the same way. And, you know, I respect people who say, okay, then we shouldn't have trademark law, but uh, I want to face up to the problem here. Um, so if I might address a couple of other things that Ilya said, just because uh, I feel like they should be addressed. Um, so first, uh, first of all, Ilya also talked about uh, copyright and patent law, and this is the importance of the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions. So when the government gives you something, uh, it is allowed to decide what it's going to give you as long as it's not tr trying to affect your conduct outside of the grant. So if it will only give you uh, money, say, for health care, if you renounce your support of abortion rights, uh, then that's an unconstitutional condition. If it will only give you money for childbirth, but not uh, for abortion, then turns out that's okay. So uh, for, I think that this actually provides the key both to dealing with the General Lee example uh, and the difference between trademark and copyright and patent. So trademark is about the link between a product uh, uh, and its, uh, it, its characteristics and its identification to the public. Uh, if the government were trying to change the products you sold, uh, as in the you know, support for abortion rights example, then there'd definitely be an unconstitutional condition. But it's not. Uh, now, th and that is uh, the distinction between patent and copyright. It also helps us understand the general lead. If TAM couldn't get any registration at all, no, for, no matter what it was for, his colors, his logo, uh, his own name, until he changed the name of his band, Ilya would be 100% right. But Tam can get another registration. He just has to choose another mark to use alongside with the slants. Uh, so maybe a logo, uh, you know, maybe his own name featuring Simon Tam. Might have a little trouble with the people from Firefly, uh, but that'd be interesting. Um, so... For me, the government is not saying you can't have a registration uh, or a license plate for the General Lee 
the government is saying, we don't care what bumper stickers you have on your car or what you paint your car. You can have a Confederate flag slapped all over those. You just can't have it on the license plate. Uh, and I think that's quite important. And this relates to the final point, which is that this is not about the government endorsing or standing behind a specific message. That's why I talked about Shelley versus Kramer. Shelley versus Kramer is not about the message of endorsement sent to the public. It's about the things that the government should rely on for its own decisions. So the government doesn't stand behind most covenants, right? Uh, if a place uh, that you want to live says you can't have pets, the government is not endorsing that when it upholds that and allows them to kick you out for having a pet. It also wouldn't stand behind or endorse uh, the contrary. Like if the place that you wanted to live said people must have pets, that would also be okay. The government can be indifferent as to those because it considers them within the bounds of you know, acceptable restrictions. Uh, Shelley versus Kramer says, but there are some things that the government uh, should not consider acceptable reasons, even though it can consider lots of contradictory things okay. Uh, and to me, that's, uh, that's sort of what disparagement is doing. Wow. Thank you for that wonderful and substantive response. Lots there, ranging from a discussion of Shelley v. Kramer. Listeners, remember, that's the case, striking down restrictive covenants when people want to rent houses, to this devastating news about Chicken of the Sea, because I now can't get the jingle out of my head. What's the best tuna? Chicken of the Sea, showing the value of a trademark protection, I guess, because I grew up on that wonderful Jingle. I, I think that's fair use of that jingle. I'm no IT <laughs> scholar again. But. There's no doubt about it. Ilya, I want you in a moment to respond to Deborah's many points, but Deborah, first, let's pull back and sum up what we've heard so far at, a, at the 30,000-foot level. I hear Rebecca saying uh, trademark law has long included morality restrictions on trademarks, and to strike those down in the name of the First Amendment, which would be consistent with an increasing trend to prohibit morals legislation on the Supreme Court as a violation of autonomy or, or free speech would really be to call into question the entire fabric of trademark law. Can you can you sum up uh, what you've heard uh, so far? Definitely. I, I, another point related to that is, that is this issue of inconsistency. And can we tolerate some inconsistency in the trademark registration scheme without giving up on the rule of law? And I think I think the answer to that question is pretty clearly yes. We do so in every other uh, regime where courts have to decide things because we have to remember that unlike the copyright context where essentially it is just a, an, a pretty simple application with a quick stamp of a, approval and very little review, in two-thirds of trademark applications, the office has an issue. They they say, look, there's a problem with this that the applicant needs to resolve before you get your registration. And at that moment, the applicant must put forth uh, evidence, right? And so you can have two identical applications for the same mark, and perhaps one person submits evidence to overcome that block, and another person doesn't. And of course, the person submitting the evidence is going to get the mark. So there could be inconsistencies that have nothing to do with whether or not the standard is appropriate. So uh, finding that they're inconsistent results, I think, is not fatal to the system that we have it. However, I think Rebecca's, um, I'd love to hear more from both Rebecca and Ilya about the unconstitutional conditions doctrine, because as I understand the doctrine, it prevents the government from granting benefits only if it approves of a message. So in this, why isn't this that situation where you only get the benefit of registration only if the particular examiner that draws your application approves of your message and thinks it does not uh, come in conflict with the disparagement bar? Thank you for that. Okay, Ilya, lots on the table ranging from Deborah's question about unconstitutional conditions to Rebecca's many points, and I would love you to respond to them now. Sure. Yeah, the, the unconstitutional conditions point, we go into that uh, in our brief, and it's precisely as, as Deborah said. Uh, you're only getting this government benefit, uh, the, the registration, uh, if uh, you give up your right to um, speak in a certain way. And, and the government isn't saying that you can't speak in this way, that you can't call yourself your, the slants. It's not you know, throwing you in jail for, for using the, the term, uh, but it's saying it's denying you this benefit. And that is an unconstitutional condition. You only get this government benefit uh, if 
uh, you forego your exercise of this other constitutional uh, First Amendment right. So that's problematic. Um, and again, this goes to what Rebecca was talking about, um, uh, the, the government system of registration uh, uh, from the very beginning. Uh, now, you know, we, I don't want to get into a, a broader, very philosophical uh, discussion about the proper scope of government protection for intellectual property, especially among libertarians. There's a whole spectrum of people who think that government shouldn't be involved at all, that it, the, these copyright, trademark, uh, uh, patent rights are, are all government-imposed uh, monopolies and thus violate natural rights, uh, going all the way to the very strong position that, the, you know, your creativity, what you create, you mix the, your, your mind with your labors with uh, tangible objects sometimes, and, and that creates something new, and we need to incentivize that as the founders provided for, that Congress can do. Um, so, you know, that's a, that's a very different discussion about whether the government should have a system of trademark registration, how it should function, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's very different. Um, but the system that it currently has, the Lanham Act, um, the purpose of the Lanham Act isn't to prevent offensiveness or to, to make sure that only uh, 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 marks that comport with people's sensibility, uh, that only that kind of intellectual property uh, advances the development of the uh, creative arts and, and uh, useful arts and, and progress of science, to use the constitutional language. Instead, the Lanham Act's goal uh, is to prevent deceptive and misleading advertising or trademarks in, in commerce, um, to protect registered marks from interference by local or state legislation, to prevent unfair competition, and generally to prevent fraud and deception. And of course, you can't say anything if, if that induces some sort of, uh, some sort of fraud. Uh, those are the, the core goals of IP in this context. And as the American Jewish Committee's brief, uh, written by Canon Shanmugam, goes into, uh, this particular disparagement clause doesn't advance those. Instead, it's some sort of sensibility or offensiveness um, uh, police. Um, and I don't think that the disparagement uh, uh, clause can be um, used in the same way that all of these other criteria are where new evidence might shift the ultimate result in the PTO. What kind of new evidence about disparagement do you want? Something like the Redskins were thought to be disparaging, but the latest survey from a year or two ago, the latest poll, shows that upwards of 90% of Native Americans uh, are fine with the, the team name, and even are proud of uh, and, and celebrating it. All of a sudden, where maybe we might have found it disparaging, but because of that statistical evidence, it's no longer disparaging. I think that those are such subjective claims that it's not, uh, it's not useful, legally speaking, uh, as bringing in outside evidence of confusion or deception or, or, or anything uh, like that. And speaking of the Redskins, I'll, I'll close on this. I've been, I've been mentioning a lot of these amicus briefs because this is obviously uh, room for a lot of creative uh, legal and factual presentation. The Redskins' own brief, uh, formerly the name of the team, is, the corporate entity is Pro Football Inc., uh, written by Lisa Blatt. They have a long appendix uh, of various kinds of uh, registered trademarks, uh, not that are inconsistent, but that are uh, about as disparaging as the slants might be, and yet they were registered, like the American Redneck Society, or Baked by a Negro Baked Goods, uh, or Bitch Face Cosmetics, or Bitchy Gay Apparel. Uh, and by the way, these are not registrations from like the 50s and 60s. These are all in the 2010s. I could go on. Uh, so uh, again, it just seems like um, uh, disparagement is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, nobody thinks that the government is uh, spending money uh, or otherwise endorsing or subsidizing any marks that it, that it registers. And at the end of the day, this disparagement clause uh, or, or trying to police what's offensive or not uh, has no place uh, in the world uh, of intellectual property. Let the marketplace of ideas, let the marketplace of dollars uh, figure out which marks uh, are successful or not. Thank you for that. Rebecca, we're so lucky to have you here to give us, to teach us about copyright and trademark. Ilya mentioned the historical roots of the clause. He said some libertarians believe that there should be no monopolies in intellectual 
property at all. Thomas Jefferson, who was so opposed to monopolies that he proposed a failed constitutional amendment that would have prohibited Congress from establishing monopolies with exclusive privileges, was willing to grant a limited exception for intellectual property because he thought it would encourage creative activity. Tell us, you know, take us back to the origins of property and trademark law. What, what, why did the framers think it was okay? And, 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 and how does this effort today, in this case, to apply First Amendment principles to copyright, to, tr to trademark law, fit into that history? So uh, a couple of uh, caveats. First of all, with respect to libertarianism, all I can say is, you know, not my circus, not my monkeys. Uh, so <laughs> I am not going to take a you position trademark on, uh, uh, I believe it's an old uh, 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 European phrase. Are um, you libertarians as monkeys? Uh, yes, and not seeking a registration, so I have no problem. Uh, so anyhow, um, the framers would have been completely astounded by the thought of uh, the modern registration system granting all sorts of rights to foreign entities without use. Uh, I mean, so, I mean, we are, we are so beyond what they would have understood uh, that, especially with trademark, it's really hard to make a founding-based argument, uh, especially with something like unconstitutional conditions. So I think instead, uh, we do have to figure out what to do with the state that we have. And it is a perfectly coherent position to oppose the modern regulatory state. But it is not, I think, coherent to oppose only disparagement refusals and like the whole rest of the system. And this, I think, is why uh, the description of unconstitutional conditions that you've gotten has been a little distorted. So it's true. If you have to give up your right to speak outside the contours of the program itself, uh, that is outside the content, uh, the, uh, what the government is doing for you, that's an unconstitutional condition. But that's not what's going on here. Tam can call himself the slant and get a registration for anything else that meets the standards of the program. He can continue to promote the slants. He can continue to promote reappropriation of the term. He can get a registration for a logo. And this is exactly the same, uh, I think, as the, uh, saying, look, the government could can choose to fund abortion and not childbirth or vice versa. Uh, the government can fund promotion of democracy and not promotion of authoritarianism. Or maybe upcoming, vice versa, we'll see. Uh, but uh, it does have those choices of what it's going to pr uh, promote. And I, I think also in light of the many contradictions that do exist, you know, the, the apparently conflicting decisions, the long list of names that may be offensive or maybe not uh, that have gotten through, uh, I will make another analogy, which is to public schools. So if all public school teachers had to be good, uh, consistent enough that anyone plucked from anywhere would give the same grade to a history paper. Uh, that is the situation, I think, that we are asking for the PTO to be that consistent with its 500,000 applications a year. Now, it just can't happen. Does that mean the system is not worth ha having? I think that's an important question about the regulatory state, but it's not one that's about disparagement. Um, and in that light, I would say, uh, I, I appreciate Ilya's point uh, that he says outside evidence of confusion or deception is clearer than evidence that the N-word is disparaging. And here I'm gonna claim some topic-specific expertise. I actually teach two entire courses about this, advertising law and trademark law. and I will tell you, confusion and deception is often in the eye of the beholder. The question is whether the goal is worthy, uh, not whether it is easy or whether consistency is easier in one field than in another. And I think we can have a legitimate debate. So this is uh, this leads to my last point, which is uh, Ilya listed off some of the Lanham Act's goals. There are many goals. Fraud and deception prevention aren't the only goals of the Lanham Act, um, and it is a balancing act. The question actually, fundamentally, is whether the government can decide that it has other goals than anti-fraud. Um, 
And the registration system actually is goes far beyond what you would need to pr protect against fraud. Uh, the government explicitly says in the Lanham Act text that it wants to protect other groups, other trademark owners. Um, there are exclusions that protect government entities, including the entity, other government entities like foreign governments as well as state governments. Uh, there are exclusions that protect wine producing regions. Um, and the disparagement bar protects groups of people who themselves may be engaged in commerce. I think that's a legitimate thing for Congress to decide. I don't think it had to. Uh, but I think this is one of the areas where um, one's theory of government, one's theory of legitimate legislative action should be the deciding role. And I respect people who say, no, you know, government shouldn't get to do anything. I just think that they should recognize that that probably means we shouldn't have an Atlanta Act. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, there are few greater pleasures in life than an intelligent and witty conversation. And this is one of them, but like all pleasures, this has to end. So it's time for closing statements. Uh, Deborah, uh, what are the stakes in the Lee versus Tam case? And do you want to venture a prediction about which way the court may rule? Well, I think the stakes are higher than they may first appear. I think that one of the really terrific things about the court taking cert on this case is that we're going to see the court wrestling with the speech issues on both sides because when somebody is denied a trademark, they will argue that they have speech issues denied as, as Tam is arguing. But if Tam were to get that registration, he would be able to stop other people from speaking. And I'm hoping that the analysis that we hear from the court is nuanced enough to, to give us some uh, so the court's thoughts on the fact that there's not speech issues on just one side of this. Um, additionally, I think another big thing at stake here is what happens to a mark if it does not get registered? Does that mean it cannot be protected by the other provisions of the Lanham Act? That is a huge point, and I think that uh, if we – one way that the court could – uh, but the baby a bit on this is to take down the disparagement clause, say it violates First Amendment principles, but still say that it may be protected under the other provisions of the Lanham Act, uh, which protect unregistered marks. I don't know if they can find a principled way to articulate that position, but if they were looking for a compromised position, that is one way that they could do it. Thank you for that Solomonic suggestion. Ilya, what are the stakes in the Lee and Tam case, and why should our listeners care about it? The stakes are how heavy-handed the government can be in policing speech, uh, at least in the context of intellectual property. The government admits in its petition that the essential function of trademarks is to uh, identify goods and services as emanating from a particular commercial source. It's hard to understand how the disparagement clause furthers a legitimate patent and trademark office goal um, because uh, it can't be contended seriously that scandalous, immoral, and disparaging trademarks fail to promote the well-known purposes underlying trademark law, which is, again, the protection of the public from deception and the protection of the trademark owner from misappropriation. That's a quote from uh, 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 a law review article that we cite in our, uh, in our brief. Uh, rather than promoting an offense-free marketplace, the goal of the trademark system is quite simple, in other words, for people to know what they're buying. And this goal is aided, not diminished, by allowing artists and brands to choose an identity that accurately characterizes their work. What if the slants had chosen a less controversial name, as the government apparently wanted? Suppose instead of calling themselves the slants, the band played it safe and called themselves four Asian-American men who are very respectful of our diversity as a nation. Now, someone attending a show by such a band might well find it more destabilizing, that's uh, to, to, to characterize one of the dissents from the federal circuit below that said it, was, it, would, it promotes stability to get rid of offensive marks, but it would be more destabilizing to only then discover that the band's song contained lyrics referencing the schoolyard taunt, Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, uh, look at these. Um, if some of these marks do cause hurt and offense to some, Punishing speech to prevent such offense, and by punishing I mean denying a government benefit based on uh, the content or the views expressed in the speech, is simply not permissible 
under the First Amendment. Um, like we saw in the case of Snyder versus Phelps with the offensive funeral protests, um, uh, the, the First Amendment protects uh, even offensive speech regardless of where it appears. And this is different from the license plate case because it's sim simply not the case that every mark of that R with a circle, the registered trademark, means that the government endorses it. Uh, at the end of the day, um, and to quote again uh, from the conclusion of my brief, uh, all of us who sometimes find ourselves lumped into a basket of deplorables, which is a great brand, uh, band name, by the way, uh, we'll hope that the court lets the people judge for themselves what's derogatory rather than leaving it to the government. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Rebecca, last word to you. Why is the TAM case important and why should our listeners care about it? Uh, so it is actually important in uh, the question of how much scrutiny will the First Amendment uh, give to government functions, government programs uh, across the board. Uh, so the goal of the Lanham Act is, is as I said, not just anti-fraud. We could have a law against fraud, um, but the Lanham Act is far more complex and reticulated than that. Uh, and indeed, it provides things like nationwide rights in advance of any use. So well before anyone could possibly be confused, uh, you can keep others from you know, using a mark. Uh, it's part of the point of the Lanham Act, in fact, was to create a national economy uh, that was open uh, to all. To, all entrants. Um, and I think that's actually part of the idea of uh, disparagement is to avoid uh, false connections or uh, false implications that would be exclusionary in commerce. It's absolutely true. Uh, nobody's entitled to be uh, protected against offense uh, in general. But you are, just as you're entitled not to be defamed, I think Congress is uh, can legitimately decide that you're entitled not to be discriminated against um, or disparaged in a commercial transaction. And Congress here is regulating only the trademark function, the link between the um, mark and the product or services, and not the content. I think that's legitimate. Uh, and I think if uh, the court finds otherwise, which it may well, uh, uh, then it will be extremely important to figure out what the difference is between this and other parts of the system. Thank you so much for that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the Victorians believed that the purpose of literature was to provide amusement and instruction, and that is exactly what this wonderful podcast has provided. It has been witty, intelligent, and illuminating, and I'm so grateful to our three Dream Team panelists for having amused and instructed us. Deborah, Ilya, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Here's what I want you to do, listeners. If you're not a member, just go to the website and sign up. You can, $5, whatever you feel like, but I want you to be a member of this community and get our emails and be part of the community of lifelong learners that is the National Constitution Center. So please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.